this morning. Excited that you're here, and um, Miss Karen, I don't, I, I don't have any. So you just got to run it, okay? All right, cool. Uh, we've been doing some updates in the building. Every day they've somehow knocked the internet off, so um, a little a little challenging here at the moment. But we're good. So this morning, I want to step before you. Um, Maybe a really big idea, and it's this. What's the most important question you could ever ask? Like, what's the most important? Like, if you had all the questions you could imagine, what's the most important question you could ever ask right now? So you're just kind of imagining that, right? I mean, there's some really important questions you should ask, right? I mean, like, where should I go to school? Uh, should I take this job? What should be my career path? Um who should be my friends? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I even get married? Right? Should we buy this house? Should we move? I mean, those are also there's many other all obviously a multitude of questions, right? Some more significant than others. But today, I want to set before you the most important question that you could ever ask. Um, and so, doing that, listen, I acknowledge that um, other people might disagree. There might be folks in here that disagree with what my um, thought on this this is. But uh, my hope and prayer is, is that you and I, as we start in the Word of God, is that our source of truth, right? We all have a worldview, okay? I don't know if you realize that or not, but we all have a worldview. We all have a lens in which we look through and we view the world. And everybody you encounter, they have a worldview. And so, everybody has to have some source of truth. Um, some people are really big that they don't have any truth, right? Or all truth is equal. But in saying that, they're also testifying they have some belief of truth, right? Their belief of truth is that there isn't truth. Um, but still, some some sort of worldview, some sort of holding or formulation of what's actually important. So this morning, I want to do my best to take you through the Word of God to really help you and I understand what's the most important question you could ever ask. And then kind of secondly, the follow-up to that. What's the answer to that question? All right. Um, and then the follow-up to kind of that is this. is What's the answer to that question? But also, why is that the answer? Right? I mean, we can give the church answer, the Bible answer really quickly and say, okay, if that's the most important question you could ever ask and this is the answer to it, um, great. Let's all close the Bible and leave. But let's, let's challenge that. Right? I mean, you and I live in a world where people would say, well, why is that, the, why is that actually the answer? And then thirdly, we're going to look at this. of so just saying, hey, what should I do in response to this answer? Right? If that's the most important question I could ever ask, and this is the answer to that question, and this is the reason why that's the answer, then what should I do in response? So this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Um, if you'll turn there with us, Acts 16, beginning at verse 25, uh, we're going to start walking through the text. So um, we're now on slide number five. All right, so kind of, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's going to be challenging. It's all right. Um, I plan to do a lot of drawing, so it's okay. Sometimes, again, we talk about that. God changes things. Um, sometimes Satan's at work, um, so we don't know, but all those things matter. So anyway, any of our techie people out there, we need you, right? We could use your help. Um, so anyway, Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there's a great earthquake, right? And we walked through this last week. The foundation of the prison were shaken. It says, Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he's about to kill himself. Why? He believes all the prisoners have escaped. All right. And so we kind of know this. What's the Roman law? Well, if you're a Roman soldier or you're working for the Romans as a soldier, right? And your responsibility is to guard prisoners. If a prisoner gets away, what happens? They kill you. It's your life in place of their life, right? So that's very important. So when this earthquake happens, the doors are open um, and all the bonds are broken loose. This we don't again. We don't know how much he can see. He's going to ask for lights in just a moment. This man is literally taking his sword out and he's ready to kill himself. 
because he realizes these guys have probably escaped, and I know what's going to happen is, is they're going to take me, and they're going to take my life now in place of this. So watch what happens here, right? Uh, verse 28. Paul cries out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer calls for lights. Again, remember, this was about midnight, the text told us, so they can't see. It's not the place where they live with electricity. And it says, verse 29, the jailer, the jailer calls for lights. He rushes in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he says this. All right, this is the question kind of we're after today. Sirs, what, what's the question? What must I do to be saved? All right, that, that's the big idea today. If you want to know what I believe is the most important question, or what I believe biblically is the most important question that you could ever ask, it's this. What must I do to be saved? Now, the question becomes, well, why is this the most important question, right? Well, I mean, what, what basis do you have to, to, to make this statement? Well, let's deal with it just for a moment on this question of salvation, right? And you notice, first of all, that it is personal. He says, what must I do, right? This is about me. This is about you. This, this has real, real significance for you. But let's deal for a moment with the word saved. What's it even mean to be saved, okay? So let's turn now to Romans chapter 5 just for a moment, or you can just look at it on the screen. The question starts is Romans 5 verse 9 would tell us, well, what are we being saved from or what are we being saved for? Why is this so significant of a question? What's the after here? Verse 9 of Romans 5 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. So the question becomes, well, what is the wrath of God? Well, that's literally, God is what the Bible calls holy, okay? It means he is, literally indicates he's being set apart. He's different than you. He's different than me. And the fact that he has never sinned, he's never going to sin, he's never had a wicked thought, he's never done a wicked deed, God's different than you and I. And because God is different than you and I, he can't allow us just to waltz into his presence, okay? He's what you and I would say, I don't know if you've ever dealt with it before, but um, he's a good judge, okay? Uh, we, we're blessed in this land to have some really good judges. And let's be honest, I'm sure there's just like there are, are some bad preachers and some bad teachers and some bad lots of things, bad doctors. Um, we, we have all kinds of bad things, right? I mean, we, let's be honest. We have bad, but, but, but for the overwhelming majority, God, we, we're blessed in a country with, with great folks. But listen to what happens here. He says, listen, because God is the ultimate good judge, he's perfect. That he must judge and deal with each and every sin. So because of that, because God is holy and he's a good judge, he must judge sin. And so, therefore, he has what the Bible calls wrath, or it's a holy good anger towards sin. And in fact, it says, the Bible says that he's going to judge all people. He's going to bring judgment upon us. But here's what he's saying. Listen, you want to know how to be saved from this anger of God? How to be saved from God's judgment? He says it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is by Jesus' sacrifice for you. That Jesus could pay the penalty that you owe. That Jesus could pay your sin debt. That you could be stand before God and be accepted. Not as you are, but in the righteousness of Christ. This is how faith is working. This is how your belief and trust in Jesus is being translated to you. It's a transformation. So what are you being saved from or what are you being saved for? Again, why is this the most significant question we could ever ask? It's because we're now beginning to see this. We're being saved from the wrath of God. Further with me, Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, there's a, what's called the rich young ruler. Right? He shows up and he asks Jesus this question in verse 18 of Luke 18. Is the Wi-Fi you think working now? Cool. Let's try it and see. We'll just wait. Maybe it'll pop up. 
I'm just seeing Greensboro back. Which one are you guys on? The staff one won't even show up for me still, but um, it's okay. Oh, there it goes. Try it now. We'll see. Yeah, cool. Now it's on. Awesome riff. It's a dot one hundred. Is that cool? Maybe it fired up now. Awesome. So um, as they're doing that, Luke eighteen. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Uh, Luke 18. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks this question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Well, why do you call me good? He says, Nobody's good but God alone. And then Jesus tells him, Hey, listen, you know the commandments or you know what God's expectation is. And he just starts starts signing some of the Ten Commandments, right? He says, You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, right? Um, Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this, this young man's there. And it's literally as if he pulls this little sheet out of his pocket. And he's like, well, actually, God, I'm, I, this right here, it's, I don't know if you can see that or not. But that's actually when it says honor your father and mother. That's my mom and dad's signature. They're, they're verifying that I've done that. And, well, you're going to take my testimony on this one. But I've actually never lied before. And so he's kind of like just saying, hey, listen, I've kept all these since I'm good. I, I've got the check marks. I've got the stickers from church to prove it, right? And so Jesus says, well, hey, listen, one thing you still lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he says, then you're going to have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. But it says when the man heard these things, he became very, became very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. Is it flipping now? Cool. And so look what he says, verse 24. Jesus says to him, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, we're dealing with this. What, what, why is this question so important? What must I do to be saved? What is being saved even mean? Well, Jesus is helping you and I here translate that or get us some bearings on what it means to be saved. Notice the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The guy asked him that question. Well, Jesus now equates eternal life or inheriting eternal life with entering into God's kingdom. Again, he's going to talk about that there. He says, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it, then they asked this question. Who then can be saved? Similar to what our Philippian jailer is asking today. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's asking a similar question. Who can be saved? Who can enter into God's kingdom? This seems impossible. And Jesus says, well, in fact, you're right. What is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. So if you want to know the answer to the question, you can't look within. You can't look to the culture. You can't look to the world around you. Jesus says you have to look to God. He says this is an impossible answer. If you're after the answer of how can you enter into God's kingdom, how could you live forever? He says, in fact, you can't start with yourself or the culture or all the things that you may know. He says you must start with God. So we start dealing with this idea of what's it mean to be saved. We start to realize that, hey, there's a lot of talk about eternity, about living forever. And so let's just deal with that for a moment. What is eternal life? Well, Jesus shows up to one of his friends that have died. He shows up there, and it's in John chapter 11. And he speaks to one of this man's two sisters that are still living. Her name's Martha. And he says to her in verse 25 of John 11, I'm the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, again, we're talking about this question, what is eternal life? Trying to help us understand what it means to be saved. Though he die, yet shall he live. Whoa. So when this guy's asking about salvation, this is not simply like, just like, get me out of my present circumstances in life. This is like a big ballpark picture. Like, hey, I don't want to like something bad happen to me when I die. So how does this work? 
And that's what Jesus is telling him. Listen, I want you to realize what eternal life is. It's about entering into my God's kingdom, into my Father's kingdom, and it's about the reality that even though you may die, you actually can still live. That's what this idea of eternal life. And in fact, he says, listen, I want you to realize that in this new kingdom, those that enter into eternal life, they'll never die. There'll be no more of that separation, Revelation 21 says. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. It says the older things has passed away. And God who's seated on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. So what else is this eternal life after? Well, look what Jesus or Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. And he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Jesus, he's, he's, our Lord in, he's our Lord in Christ. He says, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that we might what? Live with him. So if you're asking, what is eternal life? What is salvation? Well, we're starting to hear it. Jesus is telling us it's about entering into his father's kingdom. It's about the fact that even though you may die here on earth, that in fact you're still going to live somewhere. And Jesus is telling us further, as Paul now writes by the power of the Holy Spirit, telling us it's actually being with God. This is really big. This is really significant. Further with me, just for a moment. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John writes and he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, look what it says here, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This is huge. Why? Because I'll be really honest, I, I really wasn't sure a lot about what happens after death. I, I don't know about you. I mean, our culture talks about all kinds of stuff. All right, I've encountered lots of folks that... Um, believe in reincarnation and other things that uh, maybe you show up as something else or maybe you get to come back and you get a do-over if you don't do it very well in this life or or maybe we just cease to exist and look what the Bible's telling us uh, and, and I'll be honest with you another thought I held a long time probably as a child I always thought I would like become an angel I don't know if you ever thought that and um, I, I know some folks that they believe that but Jesus doesn't say that we become angels in fact he talks about us judging angels and he says that and when he talks about marriage there in Matthew 19 he says we shall be like angels not that we are but then we have this statement I think it's one of the most beautiful moments if you want to get an idea of what's going to happen in eternal life Blake like why is this such a big deal why is this so important I think this right here is one of those verses that you need to anchor to when it says in verse 2 of 1 John 3 that you shall be like Jesus. Now, it doesn't say you will be Jesus. Notice that. We shall be like Him. There's an indication that you're going to live as a physical person. That you like, you're going to be... I mean, this is greater than anything that you've ever imagined. You're going to have a physical body. You're going to be able to recognize. That's one of the questions folks often ask, Brother Todd. Now we say, listen, when I get to heaven, will, will I be able to recognize the people I love? Will I know anybody? The Bible is absolutely clear on that. Yes, you will. They're going to know you. You're going to know them. In fact, the Bible indicates that you most likely will know people that you've never met. Why? Journey to Matthew 17, when Jesus is there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter and James and John are there. And who shows up? Moses and who? Elijah. These guys have lived thousands of years before. Peter's never met them. And look who he says. He says, there's Peter and or there, there's Moses and there's Elijah. He knows, he knows and recognizes people he doesn't even know. So I want you to begin to see, when you think about eternal life, there's something so great here. When he's saying, what must I do to be saved? He's talking about a real physical existence. And Jesus is saying it's an actual, literal kingdom. He calls it a new earth. Now this is big picture, right? I mean, this gets really practical for a moment. Because some of you have experienced a lot worse than me, but I'll be honest, at 32, I wasn't real happy that my dad's not here to walk beside me. 
Like, I'm, it's not cool. Like, when I, I'll be honest, if I could just be really transparent for a moment. I sometimes get envious or jealous when I see other grandpas playing with their grandchildren and realize my dad's not here to do that with my kids. I, I do. All right? And listen, some of you have dealt with a lot worse stuff than I have. So, I, again, I, I realize it's really, really small change compared to what some of you are dealing with. But when I start to see what Jesus is going to bring about new kingdom and realize that people will never die there, that there's going to be no sin there, that we're actually going to have a physical body. We, you, you, we could talk through that a ton, too. Um, I start to get really excited. I don't know about you, but to realize, hey, listen, there's a lot of stuff in this life that you and I are going to miss out on, maybe because of death or because of sin or because of relationships or because of, of just things not working out or because of distance and time. He says, but listen, in this new kingdom, it's not going to be that way. In this new kingdom, there's going to be no more death. In this new kingdom, there's going to be no more sin. In this kingdom, there's going to be no more separation from the people you love and care about. Now, the significance is they must know the answer to this question, not merely with their lips, but also with their lives. So when we talk about eternal life, we also have to realize that there is an eternal death or an eternal hell. And this is significant. To do that, I think we should speak to the master on the subject, Jesus. And if you would walk through the biblical text and look much at hell, what you're going to realize is is that Jesus talks about it more than anyone else. The Son of God talks about hell more than anyone else. As if like this subject is so big and so major that Jesus himself has to come and he has to speak. And he does a lot. And listen to what he says about hell. He says, and these, verse 46 of Matthew 25, and these will go away, he says, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, we love the idea of eternal life. We love the ideas of the things we've just studied. Hey, we're not going to die. We're going to be there forever. Um, does it, it dropped again, didn't it? It's okay. It's probably going to come and go a lot. I don't know. It's all right. Um, I'm on slide 13. We'll just, we'll just do our best to follow. I apologize. Um, so, <clears throat> listen, Jesus says, there's eternal punishment, eternal life. We love the idea of eternal life, living forever, being in God's kingdom, no longer sick. But Jesus says, listen, I want you to know there's also a counter to that. There is eternal punishment. And we've got to deal with this again. If you're going to answer what's the most significant, important question you could ever ask, you're going to have to know what the Bible says and why it's actually significant. I mean, what gives this question credence above all others? Why is this significant? Why should I be asking this question? So if you would, just for a moment, let's just walk through a couple texts. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 9. This is the book of Revelation, the book of end times, of last things. It says that if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, God's going to pour out the wine of, its, of God's wrath. All right, they're going to drink it. All right, this biblical imagery of God's judgment is coming forth. He says he's going to pour it full strength in the cup of his anger and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur. Look what he says there, verse 10, in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Well, if it's in the presence of these people, that means that this judgment is ongoing, right? It's not, hey, listen, that's just temporary. It's, it's ongoing. Look further with me, though. This is significant. Verse 11, Revelation 14. What is eternal death? What is hell? We're dealing with a very, very weighty matter. And the smoke of their torment, says, goes up forever and ever. Is it working? Is that cool? Sorry. I know we've done a lot of things. At you. We're on four, number 14, if we can find that one. So verse 11 of Revelation 14, it says, The torment for those that are apart, those that have not worshipped Jesus Christ, they have not submitted their lives to Him, the Bible says that they have no rest day or night forever and ever. 
It says their torment goes up continually. It's not like, hey, listen, live it up in this life. And guess what? If you're wrong, no biggie. God's just going to like smite you, judge you in that moment. And then like you just check out and you don't you cease to exist. So it's not real. I mean, it's like, hey, I mean, it may be bad for a moment when God judges me, but I mean, I'll be annihilated or I just won't exist anymore. Um, no. The Bible speaks that it's eternal. He says it's ongoing. This punishment is never ending. Further with me, Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, verse 20, we hear these words from the Word. It says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. They were thrown into this lake of fire that's burning with sulfur, alright? So we have that. Revelation chapter 20, then verse 2, we see that they grab that dragon. It says, The ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan. Alright, so different names for Satan, who he is. And they bound him for how long? Do you see it? A thousand years. This is interesting. It's very significant. Verse 10. Again, we're trying to deal. What is, what is eternal death? What is hell, Blake? What, what's the Bible telling us? Why is this question so significant? I'm trying to really lay a lot of foundation so you understand what's behind it. It says in verse 10 of Revelation 20 that after this thousand years, he's going to be loosed again. And then they're going to do this. With, what's going to happen with Satan? There, his end is coming. His climax is being reached. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. Notice the tenses. It's very significant. And they, and they, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why is that significant? Well, because the beast and false prophet in verse 20 of Revelation 19 were thrown into this lake of fire. We've now had a thousand years and now the Satan is thrown in there, and now it still says, they. So after a thousand years of being tormented, they have not been annihilated nor consumed. They've not ceased to exist, and further, this kind of ends any idea of purgatory. We could go there along. There's a lot of scripture that would debunk the idea that, hey, listen, after death, God's going to give you another chance. And so if you really mess it up, God's going to say, well, you know what? You messed it up. It's okay. Here's this chance. Or maybe you have to go to go punishment for a little while, and then I'll bring you out. They're not being converted. After a thousand years, they've not changed their mind. They've not been redeemed. They're still there suffering eternal punishment. This is not popular preaching. I get that. But does it mean it's any less the truth? So when you and I deal with this most important question ever, why is it so important? Because I'm not talking to you about the next 20 years. This is not about your financial retirement. This is, in fact, even as significant as marriage is, it's greater than marriage. That marriage will end at death. And Jesus says we will not be given in marriage in heaven. I don't understand fully what all that means about relationships for those that have been. I don't know, but God will handle that. I trust that. But it says we're not going to be married in heaven. But this question, where you'll spend eternity, this is an eternal question. This is an eternal question. Try to connect again, do you think? Okay. One more time. We'll give it one more shot. If it doesn't work, we'll just move forward. It says I'm back on again, so we'll see. But I know it's a lot of challenge for you guys, so it's okay. This is significant. Alright, this is your eternity. This is the eternity of your children and grandchildren and the people you love and care about. This is your forever, ever. So I think that if we just hold that foundation of saying, why is this the most important question ever? It's because we're speaking of forever. 
That's why this question is so significant. So now, let's, let's look now. Well, what's the answer to that question, right? And then let's ask, well, why is that the answer, right? So what's the, what's the answer to this question, and why is that the answer? Return back with me, if you would, Acts chapter 16. So verse 30, we have the man, the jailer, comes in, and he falls before him, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And look what they tell him right here. They say, believe. Right? Is it work? It's okay. We'll just go. It's all right. They tell him, believe. Believe in who? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you might be saved. Now what it says. Thank you, sir. Be careful. Just because you hear something from a preacher, pope, pastor, reverend, Sunday school teacher, I, I don't care who it is. I don't care me. I, listen, I'm telling you, whatever you hear, you must gauge it against the word of God. Don't you freely accept it because it's from my lips. Do you understand that? I'm just a man. You must hold fast to this word. Listen to what the word of God says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see that? Will. Not might, not maybe, not hopefully. He says, you will be saved. You must believe that word believing, trusting in, conviction, having faith, right? Trusting that God, the word alone, can save. So it's awesome. I mean, there's no more simplistic answer to the greatest question ever. There's a really simple answer. What must I do to be saved? The greatest question you could ever ask. Because it speaks of eternity. And then the response, believe what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But look what happens here further, though. Look at this. It's not simply to just give this response. Look what else happens. Verse 32 of Acts 16. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to his entire household. So he says, listen, they share with him the truth. Believe on Jesus Christ, but they don't just stop there, okay? It's not just simply, hey, we've got to tell somebody, because the reality is this. Well, who's Jesus? What makes Him the Savior? What makes Him so significant? Further with me, Romans chapter 10 says, in verse 13, we love everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. We love that. But the Bible, Paul says, hey, listen, there's some meat to this. There's some responsibility to this. Why? How can they call on whom they've not believed? And how can they believe unless they've heard, right? I mean, they can't believe unless they've heard. And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they're sin? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That speaks of you. It's your call daily to bring this word. But listen, Paul's saying, listen, people just can't believe unless they've heard. That's why we go toward Oklahoma. That's why we go to changers. That's why we desire to go to the nations. Why? Because we realize this is real. As much as we want to tattoo it across the front of our church, verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord be saved, and we have a shouting fit, and woo, that's right, and praise the Lord, and rightfully so. But God discipline us if that's all we do. If it's all we do is just sit here and say, we love that verse, and we don't go and tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The responsibility is to take this good news to them. So I want you to see, what is this standing on, right? What is this statement of, hey, what must I do to be saved? You've got to believe on Jesus Christ. What makes that the answer? I mean, who gets to decide that's the answer to the question? I mean, why can't just for any number of reasons anybody be saved? Why can't good people be saved? Let's try to get at this answer to this question, right? Let's just don't just throw it out there. So if you would, turn with me. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look just for a moment. 
Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up there in verse 3. Paul now writes to Philippi, which interestingly enough is exactly where he is in jail. So Philippians is a book that's now written after Paul has left, right, sometime later. And he writes back to these people here in this very place where he is now, speaking to this jailer. He's writing to the church that was there. And listen to what he says. Again, what's the most significant question you could ever ask? What must I do to be saved? Why? Because it deals with eternal things, living forever somewhere. What's the answer to that question? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But why is that the answer? That's what we're after here now. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is significant, all right? Paul's going to give you a basis for why is the answer, believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What's the basis? What is under this answer? How can we know this is true? Look what Paul says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. He says, listen, you want to know why you think you're good enough to be saved? i got even more reasons. He says, I want to show you what my list is. Here's my list. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He says, hey, listen, I've got the sign of the covenant. I've got the sign of the covenant. He says, I was of the people of Israel, the promised nation to Abraham. He says, in fact, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want me to prove it to you? Look what Paul says. He says, as to the obeying the law, he says, hey, man, I was a Pharisee. I was the strictest. If, there was, if this was the law, he said, I would have all these other laws so far around it that I wouldn't even get close to touching the law. That's how serious I was about obeying it. As to zeal, you want to know how serious I was about God? I persecuted the church because I didn't believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah. And if he wasn't truly the Messiah, then he might lead my Jewish people astray. And so I hated him and I hated anyone that followed him. That's how serious I was. Look what further he says to us, though. He says, as to righteousness under the law, he said, I was blameless. He said, I did my very, very best. He says, I want you to know that when we grade each other, hey, I want you to know I was living as strict as I could. And look what he says. Verse 7 of Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Paul says, you want to know about being good enough on your own? I carried that torch. I ran at the front of that line with that banner. That was who I was. You want to know how I answered, what are you going to do to be saved? I'm going to tell you what I was doing. I was doing my very best to live as best as I could because I knew that somehow God would accept me because somehow I might be good enough. And look what he says. He says, I count everything as lost. Why now? Why is everything now lost? Why is all this in Paul's past? All this stuff. Why is it all lost? Why is he, he's going to literally call it rubbish. He says, I want you to know because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul's getting pretty explicit here. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, and it depends on faith. Paul says, listen, you're here today and you've got one or two righteousnesses. It's a righteousness of your own. You're just trying to be good enough. And so you, you've tried to live 
enough. You've tried to attend a church enough. You've tried to help enough people enough. You've tried to be good enough to the world. You've tried all of these different things to be good enough. And Paul says that you've got a righteousness of your own. But he says that's not a righteousness from God. He says if you want the righteousness of God, if you want to be righteous like God is, if you want to be perfect like God is, for real, like you, you stand before God as if you live Jesus' life. He says the only way that happens is by faith in Christ. He says if you want a righteousness that's actually worth something before God, that God would accept, then you've got to consider everything else lost. That it will never measure up, that you'll never be good enough, that you'll never done enough good works. God only accepts us. Why? Think about this for a moment. Can you imagine this just for a moment? Just a, maybe a practical example that might make more sense. Let's imagine that today um, you go out here in the middle of, of Main Street right here. We leave church and we already have some premeditated actions by you. You've already said some stuff on social media. You've let some other people know that you, you've got a pretty serious grudge against somebody. And you catch them as they leave the Mexican restaurant and they cross over here on Main Street. You catch them crossing the road and, man, you just hammer it and you mow them down. We've got witnesses. We've got video testimony. And you come before the judge and, man, it's, it's laid out really clear. And just before the judge gives his sentencing, you walk before the judge and just say, Hey, judge, hey, I, you know what? All that stuff, it's true. I hated that person. I despised them. I saw the opportunity. I'd been waiting for it. I knew they were going to be there. I mean, I just mowed them down on purpose. But before you judge me, before you pronounce my sentence, I want you to know that I've never jaywalked. I haven't. All my used books, I donate to our public library. The angel tree, last ten years, I haven't taken just one kid. In fact, I've taken two. And furthermore, you know what puts it over the top? I drive a Prius. Now, can you imagine for a moment the judge hearing that and saying, you know what? That just wipes out every other bit of thing that happened with this case. You're, you're not guilty. Is that not the most ridiculous thing you'd ever heard? What kind of judge would ever do that? And yet that's the very thing that we try to do when we come before God. God, I've prayed enough. God, I've been nice to enough people. God, I've gone to church. I've read my Bible. God, I've done this. I haven't. I don't cuss like that person. God, I don't do this like that person does. What's that got to do with your sin? He doesn't do anything to take it away. Only one thing will, and His name is Jesus Christ. The cross is your only freedom. Christ is your only hope. He is your only source of eternal life. That's what Paul is telling you and I. So you're, he says all of your other stuff sounds as foolish as saying, God, I've never jaywalked. I always recycle. Right? I've always been good. God, I've always done all these. I mean, come on. It doesn't take away your sin, your guilt. So... If we've asked the most important question ever, and the response has come back, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Then the third question becomes, well, what should I do in response? What should I do in response? And so here are just a couple of things. Back to our text, Acts 16, verse 31. They tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And remember, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. They, they laid out more of what, who Jesus is. They're telling them the truth. And then verse 33. And so it says, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And look what it says. He was baptized at once. He and all his family. Why? Because 
the response to Jesus Christ is immediate. He was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Now, presumably, obviously, his family has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've also understood. They've heard the gospel truth. Remember, he brought them into his house so his family could hear this truth. But the sign of immediate obedience, the first step is baptism. It's an immediate response. It was in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Everybody accepted the message. 3,000 are baptized. Acts chapter 8, Philip's in Samaria. Everybody that believes and accepts the message is baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 with Philip in the the chariot, when he hears and he sees water, he says, what should keep me from being baptized? He's baptized. Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus hears the gospel, believes, his eyes are open, guess what he does? He goes and he's baptized. Why? It's an immediate response to the gospel. It's a declaration that I am with Jesus. See him. I'm not ashamed. I'm calling him my Savior. So he's baptized at once. It's immediate response. Notice furthermore, again, what should we do as you think about this? What should be your response? This man's concerned about his family. Daddy's, he's leading. He says, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. I want my babies to hear about this. Cornelius in Acts 10, when he knows the gospel's coming, he says he finds all of his family and all of his friends. He says, get here, guys, and hear this. Mamas, daddies, grannies and grandpas, aunts and uncles. Man, you've got a special place and a great responsibility. You know the greatest question ever? And you know the answer? Have you shared it with them? Have you spoken that truth to them? Can't make them believe it, but we are to share it. Look what it says, verse 34. It says, and he rejoiced. I love how the NIV, uh, 1984 reads, says that he, that he was filled with joy. He was filled with joy. Similar in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. There's a rejoicing as the Spirit of God comes. You want to say, Blake, what might be a marker of my life that I'm in Christ? There's a filling of the God's Spirit. There's a joy there that only Christ can bring. Why? Because you know that you now have peace with God forever. What's furthermore about this? The fact this man rejoices? I want you to see this. What's, what's the change? In verse 27, this guy drew the sword and was going to kill himself. And now seven verses later, his life is totally transformed. So I want to ask you, who are you giving up on? You don't know how many, what's coming next, the next seven verses of their life. Who have you given up on? Who you quit believing that God could ever change? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're holding the sword today. And there's maybe some in here that are really, you're, you're thinking about it. It's, it's just time for me to end it. I want you to know there's a Savior who loves you and His news is so great, His truth is so great that you can put that sword down. That He's greater than everything that you're struggling with, everything that you're feeling, all the self-worth, I mean, all this just despair and discouragement. There's a Savior that's greater than that. That's a response. Saying, God, you're greater than everything I feel right now. How worthless I feel. I realize I have truth and hope and identity in Jesus Not only that, look what it says, though. He also loves the church. Verse 33, it says, he takes these guys who represent, they're coming sharing the gospel. He takes them the same hour of the night. He washes their wounds. It says he brings them into his house. He sets food before them. There's immediate community with the church. Maybe just for a moment of being really practical with you. He washed their wounds, guys. I want to ask you, who have you wounded? Like, who have you hurt? Maybe by your actions, maybe by your words, maybe by your non-actions. You just weren't there for them. Would you go and wash their wounds like this guy? 
I mean, that's a pretty humbling thing. He's washing prisoners' wounds. Who do you need to go and wash their wounds and just say, listen, I totally messed up. Would you forgive me? I'm sorry. I didn't represent Christ. Thirdly, we see it here as the text comes to a close. Verse 35, it says, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And verse 36, I think, is significant. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul says, Well, listen, they've beaten us publicly. We're uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They threw us into prison. They did it now. Throw us. They want to get us out in secret? No. He said, Let them come and take themselves out. And it says, The text says they're, they're really torn up by this. They didn't realize they were Romans. You couldn't do this. They're going to be in big trouble. So they come and they say, Hey, listen, you guys go. You guys get out of our city. So they go to Lydia's house in verse 40 and then they move on. But verse 36 is significant. Look what it says there. Those men showed up and they said, listen, let these guys go. And it says, the jailer reported these words to Paul. Why? This man's life has totally been changed and transformed. And what happened? He went back to job the next day. He went back to work the next day. Now, he's a transformed man, but God's going to use him right where he is. Some of you have that feeling that what God's called you to do isn't significant as maybe somebody else. Well, God hasn't called me to preach. God hasn't called me to go on a missionary. I mean, God hasn't... Maybe my life doesn't matter as much. Maybe I'm not as important to God. No, this man showed right back up. He reported for duty at the daily job the next day. Why? Because God wanted to use him right where he was. And he wants to do the same with you. Now, might God call you away? Absolutely. He might. He may absolutely do that. But I think it's important that this man's here and God's called him to stay right where he is, to share the gospel, and to impact people right there in the jail. Tonight, the Honduras team is going to be coming. And Rick Edwards showed with us, shared with us on Monday night just some ways in which God used him on that trip. And, and man, it reminded me a lot, Rick, of, of this truth right here. God just used the gifts he's given you. I don't have the ability to... You don't want me wiring up anything, all right? You don't want me wiring up anything. It's going to be bad. God's given people gifts for those things that I don't have. And God's given him that gift not only to use it here and now, but to take that message to Honduras to wire up schools. You see, God's given you guys really practical, meaning gifts. And He wants you to use it to impact His kingdom. That's what this guy's doing. The last thing I want to close with is this, and it's maybe just a challenge. Do you think it's interesting that Paul and Silas and the brothers have come and they've now encountered Lydia and her household and Lydia and her household has been saved? That Paul and Silas have come and the demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl has been set free. That Paul and Silas have come and been beaten and put in prison, and now the jailer's heard and his family, and they've been saved? Do you think it's significant that all this has happened? And what we have is about right around verse 10 and 11. Is that Paul and Silas get a vision from God, and it says they set sail. You see... Some of you, God's calling you to do things. And you're going to miss out on the Lydia's and her families. You're going to miss out on the demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girls. You're going to miss out on the jailers and their families. Because you're not being faithful to set sail. I know that Paul and Silas probably didn't have all the full itinerary. They didn't know they were going to jail. They didn't have all the unknowns. They couldn't figure out every answer to what was coming next. They just knew that God had called them and they went. I'm asking some of you, is it time to just let go of the rope and say, God, I'm going to have to walk by faith and not so much sight. 
If that's what you want me to do, then God, I'm going to be obedient to do it. It's time to set sail, folks. Back to your job, just like the jailer. Back to a world, back to your family. To obedience. Do you know? Personally? The answer to the most important question ever? I mean, yeah, you can say it with your lips. Believe on Jesus. I got it. I got it. But Jesus is always talking about our hearts. Do you know it in your heart? Has this answer changed you? Is it changing you still? Are you prepared for eternity? Hope and pray you are. If not, the good news is the same answer that man had is the same answer I have for you. What do you have to do to be saved today? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Him you can have a righteousness that's not your own. It's God's righteousness given to you by faith, by trust. His life given to you. For all eternity. There's no greater truth. There's no greater hope. There's no greater answer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the truth of your word, God. And I I do pray now, Lord, that, that you would speak. I pray that today your word has caused people to contemplate, God, their own eternity. To realize that there's no annihilation. There's no just it ends. That this is like forever. Somewhere. And Lord, let them see the beauty, the simplicity of just believing and trusting on Jesus, Lord. Not having to work, not having to clean themselves up enough, but only coming to you just as they are. I pray now, God, that your spirit would move. That your spirit would compel them to respond. God, be with our people that are dealing with what you're calling them to do, God. And it looks different for so many, God. I know it does. Lord, I pray that Paul and Silas' example of letting loose the rope and setting sail, I pray that would be their answer today. Even if they don't know where they're setting sail to exactly. They're just going to be obedient to answer your call. I pray you would do that word, Lord. Thank you, God, for how patient you were with me. Thank you for how patient you still are with me, Lord. Please, God, speak and draw your people. I ask this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.